have your Bibles with you, please turn in then to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and this morning we will be reading verses 35 through 46. Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 46. Two weeks ago we considered this theme of Jesus' prayer life being a foundation for our prayer life. And I'd like us to continue our consideration of this theme as we now look at verses 35 through 46. Luke chapter 22, verses 35 through 46. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bags, no knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you might that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, if you go to your average Christian bookstore, evangelical Christian bookstore, or uh, online Christian catalog nowadays, and go under the section titled Prayer, I almost guarantee you you're not going to find many books about Jesus' prayer life, whether that be the title of their section on our behalf, maybe 50 of God's right hand, or his earthly prayers that he offered to his father when he walked this earth. Rather, I imagine most of the books are going to be about our prayer life, how we can pray more effectively, how we can better make prayer a habit in our lives. Well, as I mentioned two weeks ago, when we consider this topic of prayer, we need to begin with Jesus' prayer life. Jesus' prayer life serves as the foundation for our prayer life. I'd like us to continue our consideration of that theme in this extended passage before us. Jesus' prayer life serves as the foundation for our prayer life. Now, what do I mean by foundation? What I mean, what I mean is that Jesus' prayer life serves as both the means and the motivation for our prayer life. So Jesus' prayer life serves as both the means and the motivation. That is to say, the only reason we can pray to a holy God is 
God. You have. The only reason why we have motivation is to lift our request to the God of all the earth. It's because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so Jesus is paralyzed as a means and motivation for our prayer. I'd like to also briefly remind you of that definition of prayer that we looked at two weeks ago. The full orb idea of prayer. Literal, genuine prayer, literal, genuine prayer serves as a microcosm of the heart that we are to have every moment of our life here on earth. So think about the posture of your heart when you are literally praying. When you are praying, you are renouncing your own claim to sovereignty and confessing God to be sovereign over the affairs of your life, over the affairs of other people's life, over the affairs of, of everything that happens in this universe. When you are literally praying, you are acknowledging that you are not omniscient. <laughs> that you are a mere creature in need of a creator. But that posture of heart is the posture of heart that we are to have every moment of the day, even those moments when we're not literally praying. And so, literal, genuine prayer serves as a microcosm of the, the posture of heart that we are to have every moment of our days. The, the, the submission, the trust that we are, have, uh, we are to have before our God. It's symbolic, it's representative of the very fabric of this creation. And we should feel submission to that. In fact, Jesus seems to allude to this in Matthew 15 when he says, quoting Isaiah, the religious leaders of his days, he says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You honor me with your lips, you, you, you speak eloquent prayers, but your, the posture of your heart is not reflected the words that are coming out of your mouth. And therefore, literal prayer should be hyphen on top of, 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 of this life of submission that we owe to our God as his image bearer. So prayer is a microcosm of the submission, the obedience that we owe to God as his creatures. And so, as we saw last time in verses uh, 31 through 34, we encounter two different prayer lives. We encounter the prayer lives of the apostles or the disciples, and then we also encounter the prayer life of Jesus. We're going to consider both of those different prayer lives, and we'll, we will see how Jesus' prayer life serves as the foundation, that is to say, the means and the motivation for our prayer life. Well, in verses 35 through 38, uh, Jesus alludes to a previous section in Luke's gospel when he had sent out the disciples two by two on a missionary journey to the various villages around, around the area. And when he sent them out on this missionary journey, he told them not to bring any rather to depend upon the hospitality of the villagers in the various towns and cities in which they entered. Jesus now is alluding to a time that's drawing near when he, that is to say Jesus, will leave this earth and the disciples will again be called to go on a missionary journey. But this time, they should not expect hospitality, but rather hostility. That's what we see in the book of Acts. In fact, most of the time, the apostles don't receive hospitality, but they receive hostility, which reminds us 
prepared. As they themselves will enter into the front lines of this battle. Verses 39-46 again refer to this, this battle imagery. You'll see that verses 39-46 begin and end with this call by Jesus to the disciples that they are to pray that they may not enter into temptation. It begins the section and ends the section. This is a literary technique that oftentimes the biblical authors engage in in order to, to set off a narrative as its own distinct unit. Jesus is calling, commanding the disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation.
we are not self-sovereign. It's a wake-up call to the, the, the reality of this created universe, that we are but creatures serving the creator, that we are creatures in need of this creator. And so prayers can be that constant in our life to those prayers to remind us of who we are, to remind us of who God is as the creator and sustainer of all things. Well, what happened? What happened to the disciples here? Do they habitually persevere in prayer that they may not enter into temptation? Well, look with me in verse 45. Verse 35, we see that Jesus, he went off to the garden, uh, to another place in the garden, and, and he himself was praying before his father. And he comes back, and he finds these disciples sleeping with sorrow. Sleeping with sorrow. Failing. In the very thing that Jesus has just commanded them to do. And we don't know for sure, but Peter and the rest of the apostles may be starting to get a, a little glimpse into the dark days that are ahead of Jesus. If you remember in verses 31 through 34, Peter made that very confident statement to Jesus. Jesus, I'm willing to suffer and even die with you. Verse 32, you'll see this short prayer that's recorded for us that Jesus offers before his Father. But this prayer is, is theologically loaded with so many gems for us to unpack. And so in verse 42, Jesus, as he goes off to another section, part of this garden, and he commands his disciples to pray in his absence, he, he comes before his Father in prayer. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In the next couple of verses, we see that Jesus here is in such agony that he is sweating profusely. So profusely is Jesus sweating that it is as if great goblets of blood are dropping from his forehead. As he's laboring in prayer before his father. So what is Jesus in agony over? Well, 
covering is how much God's wrath is a metaphor. In the Old Testament, God's wrath is, is, is at least several places referred to as a cup of bitter or strong drink. This is how God refers to his wrath. And Jesus recognizes that the reason for his coming was to drink this cup. He recognizes that the Father's will is for him to drink his wrath. And he's in agony with that. Now there's nothing sinful, there's nothing wrong about Jesus as a human nature agonizing over bearing the wrath of God against sins that he himself did not commit. This wasn't a sin. There was nothing wrong with this. Rather, this shows us that Jesus was truly human. He was truly human. And he wasn't just agonizing over the physical pain of being nailed to a cross. He was agonizing over bearing the wrath of God in his soul. Something that we can't even begin to wrap our minds about agonizing over this cup that he knows is looming in his future. Well, you girls, you may remember that a number of weeks ago we considered this metaphor of the cup of God's wrath, and I, I, I talked about how you can think of every single person in the nature of God is born with a cup. A cup, and every time we sin, a little bit of vinegar gets poured in that cup. Vinegar, which is obviously not tasting it, therefore it strong, very bitter. And every time we sin, a little bit more vinegar gets poured into our cup. And there's a great judgment day ahead of us, a day in which all people will be called upon to drink their cups of vinegar to the very bottom. And we are so sinful that this drinking of this vinegar is going to last in eternity. Therefore, the reason Jesus came to this earth was to drink cup of vinegar for you, was to drink our cups of vinegar for us, so that if you come to Jesus by faith, even though you continue to sin, your cup remains dry, because Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. This is what Jesus is praying about, drinking your cup of vinegar. This is the gospel that's offered to us each Sunday. see that Jesus here recognizes that and as, as we continue to read on we will see that this is indeed uh, true that God's will is for Jesus to drink this cup God's will is for Jesus to drink this cup meaning the, the reason and purpose for Jesus coming to this earth was for him to bear the wrath of God this is important for us to recognize this as fact because it has become popular in certain Christian circles to reject this notion, to reject the idea that God's will was for Jesus to bear his wrath on the cross. And individuals in, in these various circles say that the reason Jesus came to this earth was not to die, not to bear the wrath of God, but rather to fight the social oppressions of his day. And so the way in which we participate in redemption is by imitating Jesus. Imitating Jesus the social ills of our day, and so far as we imitate him, we will participate in his redemption. So this turns Jesus into something that is all law and no gospel. 
There is no good news in the gospel that says that the only way in which you participate in redemption is insofar as you imitate Jesus' life. Rather, the gospel is something that Jesus himself lived on your behalf. And Jesus here recognizes the reason the Father sent him to this earth is to bear the Father's wrath as our substitute. As our substitute. And this is something that is repeated over and over throughout Scripture. So think of Isaiah 53, verse 10, which was written thousands of years before the coming of Christ. And we read, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That is to say, the servant of the Lord who is to come. God's will was to put Jesus to death in our place as our substitute. Or Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Remember that, that earlier in Luke, we, we considered that language that Jesus passages ago, that language that Jesus uses when he says that the Father has covenanted to him a kingdom. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father and God the Son agreed, agreed that they would redeem a people. And part of this agreement entailed the Son coming to this earth in the flesh and dying for his people. In this way, we can learn something very helpful our own literal prayer life from Jesus' narrative prayer. Notice here that he urgently brings his request before God. He urgently brings his request before God. He says, remove, right, imperative, remove this cup from me. He's able to say to the Lord, this is what I desire in some sense. Remove this cup. If there's any other way for my people to be redeemed, let it be done. Remove this cup from me. us of our own prayer lives is that we can and we should boldly and urgently lift our request before God. We should boldly and urgently lift our request before God, but ultimately we rest in that third petition. We rest in the fact that we are not sovereign. Our will is not ultimate. God's will is perfect. God's will is anything good is going to come out of this horrific event, but yet God was able to turn over good into, uh, from the ultimate tragedy that would happen. And so, we trust in that same God who is able to turn our circumstances into good and into our conformity to the image of Christ. As I mentioned before, literal prayer is symbolic and microcosm of this entire life of submission that we owe to our God, then this prayer that Jesus offers in the Garden of Gethsemane on Mount of Olives here is, is the icing on top of his entire life of submission to the Father. It represents the attitude of Jesus' heart every moment he walked on this earth. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verses 38 through 39, when he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all 
that he has given me to raise it up on the last day. He who fills this earth with a job description to do from the Father. The job description was to redeem a bride for himself. And that mission absorbed in every moment of his life here on earth and ultimately led him to that cross when he bore God's wrath in our place. So we see in Jesus' prayer, this short, literal prayer that Jesus offers to his Father, we see Jesus' prayer life serving as that foundation, the means and motivation for our prayer. The only reason why we can have any confidence that we as sinful human beings are heard by a holy God is because of this work of Christ on our behalf. What this prayer that Jesus offers on all of us represents. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21 are instructive when he says that God made Christ to be sin. Our sin. God made Christ to be our sin. That is to say, God, uh, Christ drank the cup of God's wrath. The sins that you have committed, he drank that wrath on the cross so that that chasm that our sin has created might be eradicated and we can boldly draw near to God as we confess together the declaration of pardon. We also learn in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that, uh, that God also righteousness of Christ, that entire life of submission and obedience and conformity that Jesus put forward through divine law, that righteousness is, grant, is credited, granted to your bank account as it were, your heavenly bank account, so that now you can stand before the throne of grace perfectly righteous, as if you have never sinned, and as if you've always obeyed. So boys and girls, imagine, or I'd ask you, how many of you have ever spoken to a president of the United States? I can't see any hand in the air, so I don't think that's ever happened. But imagine if the president is your dad. How many times would you speak to the president then? Every day, right? And the difference is because the president is your dad. In a similar way, we should ask the question, how can we ever have hope of speaking to the creator of the heavens and the earth. The answer is that this creator has become our father in the name of Christ and Him. And so he welcomes us. He loves to hear our prayers and to answer our prayers even more than an earthly father delights to hear the requests of his children. This reality creator of the heavens and the earth longs to hear and answer our prayers because we've been covered in the blood and righteousness of Christ. Talk about motivation. But Jesus' prayer life is both the means and the motivation for our prayer. Many of you probably know that, that uh, we, in our services and you yourself in your own prayer life and at home probably conclude your prayers with this phrase, in Jesus' And oftentimes that can start to function just as a rote tradition. However, it's very significant. 
significant because Jesus tells us to do this, and it's significant because that phrase represents this whole sermon. And we conclude our prayer in Jesus' name. Again, not in the name of the Triune God, not in the name of the Father, not in the name of the Holy Spirit, but in Jesus' name, we are saying that the only reason why we can be heard by God is because of Jesus' life and submission that was lived on our behalf. Yeah. 